Well, I don't know about you, but I felt like sleeping in this morning. I don't know. There are just days like that. I don't know if it's the same for everybody, just if we're all different days, but man, this was a tough day to get up out of bed. It's kind of like that, you know, that meme about not wanting to go to school, and then it's, you know, the joke at the end is, yeah, but you're the teacher, so you've got to go. I had that feeling this morning, like, I just don't want to go, but yeah, but you're preaching, so I guess I better go. Um, so what, and I don't, this is not an affectation, that's legit. Like, I really, this morning was like, man, I'm just tired. So what is it that gets us up out of bed and up here on a Sunday morning weird? I mean, this is just weird. The world doesn't do this. This doesn't make a lot of sense um, to do this kind of thing. We do a lot of strange things. We sing and we give money and we do all kinds of stuff. It's just, it's just, it's just odd when you look at it from the outside, what we're doing here. And, and so what motivates us to do that? And certainly, and so I, I'm, I mean, this was not in the sermon before, just, just this morning, as I'm sitting here thinking, why, do, why, why am I going to get up and go this morning? And yes, a lot of it has to do with the fact that I like some of you people, and you're a lot of fun to be around, and um, it's fun to hold your babies and things like that, right? I mean, that's, that's really cool. There's some, there's some fun. I mean, us, one another, is part of why we get up and do this. And, um, and certainly part of it is the coffee and the donuts and the, and the fellowship surrounding that. Like, those are all positive things that motivate us to get up. Um, some of it, it may be obligations, like, I, well, I promised somebody I would be there. I've got to work with the kids, or I'm going to work with the teenagers, or I'm going to teach this class, or I'm going to preach, or whatever. You know, so it's like, okay, so I'm going to get up and go. Maybe it's just discipline that this is what you've always done, like John was saying. You know, we, we go and we do all that. And all of those are good reasons. There, there's no doubt all of those are good reasons. But, but what we're talking about this morning, mainly one of the things that we've been singing about this morning, which is the truth. And this is a concept that's, that at least for me, and maybe not for everybody else at the same way or whatever, maybe everybody's wired a little differently on this, but to me, the truth is really fun. Studying the truth, digging into the truth, understanding what the truth is, is like, that's the kind of thing that, that kind of fires me up or, or that, that charges my batteries. It gets me up out of bed, and, and then I get excited about learning. Um, it's one of the reasons I love to go hear um, world-class speakers Whenever I get the chance, I made a decision back in college when I had a chance to go hear Margaret Thatcher speak and was like, meh, and didn't, and then regretted it, that I was like, okay, from now on, when a world-class speaker comes into my kind of orbit, I'm going to go see them. I'm going to go learn from them. And, and a lot of times, it's because I'm fascinated by what truth or things they understand that, that they now get in a way and can communicate in a way that's different from average, and, and I can learn a lot from that. So... Um, the truth is a big part. The, the joy of learning truth, of engaging with the truth, of being challenged by the truth is a big part of, uh, I, at least why I come, um, to get to engage with these type of things. Um, and so uh, I also was going to comment, this is, this is kind of fun. This morning, as we said, you know, the new building being open and going, um, I, I, I said in the first service it was kind of almost humorous for me to hear Paul describe that building coming into existence. Um, he would never have said, like, hey, guys, I had a building built, um, but he just about could have. Um, between him and, and Dave Sherman, really, these two men have spent hundreds, maybe thousands of hours um, making that building happen in ways that, that, um, uh, that I would not have been helpful with. And so it's just amazing. If you're a leader or manager, you know the joys of having people who work alongside you or who work um, under your authority who, who are able to take something and run with it. Rebecca, Aaron, her team, their, their teams 
um, what they've done, especially over the last few weeks to get things finished up there. And by the way, Rebecca wanted me to make sure and tell you, if you go up there and you look around and you're like, seems kind of sparse in places, is there not going to be more stuff on the walls or on the furniture? She wanted to make sure you know there will be. We're good. It's just we literally got the um, permission to occupy the building Friday afternoon. And so the fact that we had people coming up all weekend, getting everything ready for this morning is nothing short of a miracle. Um, uh, but again, to come back four months now, um, really, Paul um, and Dave have done an amazing amount of work. So when you see them, thank them for their efforts. Thank Jill. She's ha- she was in tears this morning, not because the building is done, but because her, she gets her husband back. And so we're, uh, we're so proud for letting us, uh, um, well, take advantage of her husband's competency, I think is the way to say it. Um, and so um, we're, very, we're very proud of that. So for these, thank, and when you're praying today, thank God for, for these people who have done this, especially Dave and Paul. And uh, it's, it really is an amazing thing that we get to celebrate. This is a big part of who we are. In fact, do we have any first-time first graders in the room? Anybody, this is your first first grade service. Excellent. We've got a few. Fantastic. Welcome. Um, to, yes, yes, I know you down here in the front. My daughter, this is her first week as a first grader. And so um, we are so proud to have you guys here. Um, uh, space out the donuts, like try, try to like pace yourself throughout the service so that when you start, you know, fading, you can do another donut whole piece or something like that. I'm just giving you advice on how to make it through a service, okay? Crayons are a big help. I recommend the crayons. Some that's what, um, that's what gets Derek through week after week up here. So, um, uh, so just to be able to, to and, and, and just, so, just as a reminder, this is one of God's great gifts to us is the opportunity to have so many kids and the opportunity to invest in them to be the next generations of leaders and ministers. Maybe through them, the awakening will come back to our nation that our nation needs. So for us to have the opportunity to pour into them and invest in them um, for eternity is a gift to us. Um, and there are many churches in the country and around the world that would give just about anything to have children's noises um, in their church. And so we celebrate that. Kids make noise and they do little things and they're distracting and whatever. If, if, you, if you're one of those people who has that temptation to kind of cut your eyes over at the mom um, whose kids are making noise or, or being a little disruptive or whatever, my recommendation is you search your own heart, confess your own sin. There's something going on in you that you need to deal with, not them. Um, they're kids, and so we are proud to have them here um, and, to, and that they're here making noise. It doesn't bother me, so it shouldn't bother you. So um, uh, we're good. We're excited about them being here. Such a great ministry opportunity. All right, all that covered. Um, uh, I'm going to jump into verse 14 to kind of connect us to last week. Jesus said, I have given them your word. He's praying to God the Father. Here he is on the, Kid- the, on the Jerusalem side of the Kidron Valley. Probably, in my opinion, I pictured him being right near the brook. This is near Passover. The brook may have still been running, uh, may have been running red still with the blood of the Passover lambs that might have been being slaughtered during this time. And so here he is down here in the Kidron Valley. He is, he is having this prayer suddenly right in the midst of his uh, 11 apostles, his 11 uh, followers, students. And in the midst of this prayer, we're picking up in the middle of the prayer, I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Bummer, he could have done that right here. He could have saved us a lot of trouble. Um, He did not pray that, that his followers are out of the world. In fact, he's praying that we're in the world, but not of the world, that we're impacting the world, we're making the world better. Remember, he loves the world. 
And he wants the world to be a better place, and he wants the world to know that they are loved by him. So he's sending us. That's meant to be our impact in the world. He does pray that God would protect us from the evil one, meaning the the rebel, the, the leader of the rebellious forces in heaven against God the Father, who we call the Satan, um, the devil. This is, this is the, the, the power behind his power that, that he would be an enemy to us. Remember when Jesus told us to pray, part of the prayer is deliver us from the evil one. It takes God to protect us from the power of these rebels um, in his kingdom. And so we pray to him to guide us through this, to keep us from the evil one. He says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. He kept them, he was with them, he guarded them, he did not lose any of them, he gave them joy, all of them together. We were reminded of the unity that is, is, is communicated over and over again. The main prayer that God has for his followers is unity. The unity of being unified in him. And he's going to say that again and again, even throughout these last two verses of this prayer. This is his big prayer for us, is that we would be unified. The irony in that, 2,000 years later, should not be lost on us. That the main thing he wanted to pray, it's almost like he knew this would be the main problem for us, is unification. We are not uniform, we're not all the same, but we are unified. This is... This is something he knew would be a problem. It's part of why we gather together on Sunday morning. You could, you could listen to a podcast and hear truth in a better sermon Sunday after Sunday. But part of coming here is the opportunity to experience the community, to commune, to come together as one. It's part of why we, do, we celebrate communion regularly like we did last week. It's part of why we celebrate communion for anyone who wants to. Right over there at 840 pretty much every Sunday morning, except when there's baptisms, and we commune over baptism instead. But we commune over communion pretty much every Sunday morning at about 8.40. It's a great way to focus. It's what has that effect on me, to focus me in on Sunday morning again, one more time, to center me in the unity of who we are. Um, so what is what combines us? What unifies us? He says, what's, he says to sanctify them here in verse 17. What sanctifies us? To sanctify, to set apart, to make special. What is it that sanctifies us? And the answer is the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Keep them. Sanctify them. This will continue to separate the kingdom from the world. It always has. It always will. The truth. The truth is what makes us the most offensive. It is the most offensive thing about his kingdom is the truth. We don't like the truth. We don't like the truth because the truth doesn't care. The truth doesn't care whether we like it or not. The truth doesn't, is, is disinterested. The truth is a thing that is, exists because there is an all-knowing God who exists and who has always existed, and his understanding of reality is the truth. What he claims is the truth. What he believes is the truth. What he says is the truth. He is the embodiment of truth. His word is the truth. This is this, and, and the truth is independent of creation because it is in him who is independent of creation. It is, it is, but it is what sets us apart from the world is 
our relationship to the truth. It's, it's, um, it's, it makes sense that it's why it's the source of freedom. This idea, this, this Greek word here, aletheia, aletheia, the, the, the word there, the root there, which means to be hidden, to be secret. And then the word ah in front of it, which means not. Not secret. No longer hidden. Revealed. It is the truth. Notice that in the Greek mindset, in the Hebrew mindset, truth is not something we come up with. That's just goofy. It's not something we, truth is not something we invent. It's not something we create. It's something we either discover or don't discover, but it doesn't change the truth. You know it or you don't, but it is still what it is, the truth. So it's, it's something that's either we've uncovered, that we've discovered, that we've revealed. So that's, it's, many of you know the name of the counseling center that I started is called Aletheia for this reason. What sets us free is truth. Truth is what sets us free. Of course it does. We don't like it sometimes, and so what we mean is, so we go like, well, that's not freedom. The freedom to know that there's something that isn't dependent upon you is true freedom. That is actually freedom. It is the truth that sets us free in the same way that it can set us free of fear. It can set us free of, of worry when we remember certain things that are true. It's like a compass when you're lost in the woods. No matter how lost you are, the compass will point north. Yeah, but what if I'm really lost? Well, then the compass will point north. Well, what, if, what, if I don't, what if I don't believe in compasses? Well, then it will point north. It, isn't, it doesn't care about where you are, what you're doing. It is the truth. It's a stable thing. Or, or I talked about a foundation in a house. If you've ever been one of those adventurous people who like wandered through a condemned house or something, it's terrifying because you think the thing's going to fall at any moment and the, every floorboard is unsafe and suspect. Um, it, it versus a house that has a good foundation. You don't have to be constantly afraid. Are there things, bad things that can happen? Sure, that is true. There are also certain things we know that aren't dependent on circumstances. This is truth. This sets us apart. And by the way, notice your word is truth. We'll talk about it in a second. It doesn't even just say, by the way, your word is true. This is beyond just the idea of accurate, although that's certainly part of it. It's not just that your word is true, it's that your word is truth. Your word is the embodiment of truth. It is what is true. This is not merely about unclean either. Sanctify doesn't just mean set apart like, like for the temple work, something that's not unclean, but sanctified, holy, set apart. But it even just means what is not common. So I'm a, I'm a kind of a country boy. And so, you know, by, when I think of dishes, I didn't know that there were like everyday dishes and then there's China and then there's like other, like there's dish, I mean, there's a dish. In fact, in college, I think I owned a dish um, and, and a set of chopsticks, by the way, so that I didn't have to even wash spoons and forks. Like I had one set of, I'm not kidding. Like that was, that was my roommate and I would eat from Ginger Remembers this. We would, we would cook, you know, hamburger helper in a bowl and then we would sit on opposite sides of the bowl with our chopsticks and you wash one bowl and two sets of chopsticks and you're done, my friend. Like it's a, the idea of special dishes for Christmas or whatever, that was not a, so I, you know, I married a girl, had a little more sophistication. And so we got married and we're walking around chew picking China and things like that. Like <laughs> I didn't know 
anything. I could tell so many jokes about those experiences. Um, it was just, it was, it, was, it was funny more. I wasn't embarrassed about it because I wasn't, uh, I was too ignorant to be embarrassed about it. But um, we, this is, this is, as Christians, this relationship that we have to the truth, it isn't just not unclean, it's not even normal. It's not even typical. It's not common. It's not the everyday wear. It's that we have this extremely strange relationship to the truth. Fundamentally, it's this. We submit to it. We recognize the truth as an authority over us. It is true. I don't like it. It doesn't matter. There's plenty of things that I know to be true that I don't like. I mean, that's a, there's, I could, I, there's a huge list of those. Lots of things that are accurate that I don't like. It doesn't make any difference on whether or not they're accurate. It doesn't affect whether they're accurate. Pontius Pilate's kind of the theme boy for this. He should be the poster boy for this question. You may remember, we're gonna, and, and we're going to get there in a couple of weeks. John 18, 38, Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? Now, this is, this is just laziness. And, and I don't even know what all is going on with him, but understand Pontius Pilate has already embraced this idea of your truth. We've just, we've just kind of re-brought that sucker out again. We've, we've brought that concept out again. Like everybody, we need, to, we need to be able to speak. I need to speak my truth. See, here's, here's what's bad about that. That's an intentional perversion of the word truth, my truth. If what you mean is the things I believe that other people may not believe or, or what I think I experienced but maybe I didn't experience... Here's what's cool. We have perfectly good words for that. Opinion, perspective, right? Perception. These are they're perfectly good words and they they mean that. When I go, I'm going to so I'm going to I'm going to tell you my truth. Well, that's what Pontius Pilate does. Pontius Pilate in one breath will declare Jesus innocent and have him flogged and have him handed over for crucifixion. That's Pilate's truth. That's He's going to speak, this is an intentional twisting of this word. This is what you believe, what I think is true. You may not think it's true, but it's just as true to me, even if it's not true for you. That's not what truth means. That's not what the word means. Pick a different word. There's lots of good ones. My truth is that he's innocent, but you do you, you know? If you want to kill him, kill him. I think he's innocent. That's my truth. I don't know what your truth is. You want to have him executed, execute him. I'm going to wash my hands of it because my truth is no longer the significant one here. I'm going to, none of this works. The truth is something that is implacable. It is something that stands when everything else falls. It is something that is true whether you know it, believe it, or like it. Whether any of us do. It's unstoppable. It's disinterested. It's relentless. It is in no way dependent on you or me. The cultural relationship to the truth, we literally are living in an era again, this has happened before, but we're living in an era again when the the very concept of truth is considered untrue. It is no longer accepted at the conceptual level. There is no such thing as truth. That's what most people in our culture now believe or say they believe. They don't because they are stating a truth when they say that. There is no such thing as truth, true or false. <laughs> so you see that the, the absurdity of it, there is such a thing as truth, it, it, there is, and Jesus here is proclaiming that our relationship with truth is what sanctifies us. 
The truth is eternal. We sing about believing the truth, which is great. That is our relationship to the truth, is to believe in it. But understand, us believing in it doesn't add anything to it. Believing it or not doesn't make it more or less true. The truth is not interested in a vote or polls. It makes, it makes no difference. It's an absolutely distinct part of God, who God is. Now, it is also accurate to say that we're terrible at accuracy as human beings. So we have to be humble in our understanding of the truth. Not because the truth might be wrong, but because we might be wrong. That's part of how we're able to engage with this with humility, how we have to engage with it. We're terrible at it. It's one of the things that as therapists we run into. Um, people love to come and pay a lot of money to sit in the office and argue about, like, I said this. No, I, you didn't say that. Yes, I did say this. No, I didn't say that. You've had those arguments, right? Oh, you have too. <laughs> you said this yesterday. That's not what I said. Oh, that is too what you said. I was really listening closely. I think I would know what I said. Okay, all the research is this. No, you don't. None of us have any idea what we said. We are, and, and what's wild is we are delusionally certain of it. Delusionally. What's wild is even when we're not totally certain, even in the back of our mind, we have this like, oh, I think that's what I said. We will still defend it as though it is the line drawn on the Alamo, right? Like, I did too say that. So what we, what we don't know that humans do is, is what we do later is we speak what, our, what we think our intentions were the other time. That's what actually happens. I mean, again, study after study. And listen, I'm right there with you. I am delusionally certain of what I thought, as I said. Like, I am, I am completely sure, 100%. But the research is, I'm wrong. I'm probably completely, I'm way off. So that we're able to engage humbly. It's what allows you to, to rescue marriages is when you're able to engage in those conversations humbly. I really thought I said this. I, I think it's what I said. I, I, it's what I wish I'd said. Is that good enough? Like, so this is, <laughs> for us to be able to, so we have to be able to do that. We are sanctified by the truth and for our relationship to the truth, we submit to it, but we don't always know what the truth is. We try, we engage, we can be right or wrong. We strive to be right, but humbly and constantly submit that we may be wrong. That is, that is accurate. It is important for us as humans to acknowledge that, that we can be wrong, and we're wrong all the time. His revelation is never going to be the problem. Our ability to comprehend it may be the problem. Certainly to submit to it, even when we do comprehend it, that is certainly a problem we have. But I'm convinced over the years that the truth is is this, this thing that we can discover, this independent concept that exists because God exists of the truth, that sanctifies us, that sets us apart, that all endeavors to seek out the truth are truly probably seeking out the truth. And so whether it's scientific study, a scientific endeavor, empirical evidence, that kind of stuff, or, or whether it's rationality and argument and debate and philosophy, or whether it's revelation that comes from God, or even intuition, our ability to understand these things when those things are in contradiction to one another, when what we understand from scientific endeavor seems to be in contradiction with our understanding of Scripture, understand what that means is that our comprehension of at least one of them is wrong. If we perfectly understood scientific endeavors and we perfectly understood Scriptural revelation, they would never disagree with each other because they would both be on truth. 
If we, if we studied revelation, I mean, if we studied rationality and became the best philosophers and never were able to be irrational again, but to understand philosophy perfectly and understand the revelation of Jesus Christ perfectly, those two things would never lead us to a different conclusion. They would always be the truth. The problem isn't Scripture. It's our ability to understand Scripture. The problem isn't scientific study. It is our ability to scientifically study things. Or rationality. It's our irrationality that makes that hard for us. The truth is true. And for, we are never an enemy of the truth, and the truth is never in contradiction with the truth. We, we are the limited creatures here. That's what allows us to be humble and to submit to the relationship with God even when we don't always know. We aren't Gnostics. Our faith isn't in our knowledge. Our faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. By the way, this is so important that this is how Jesus introduced the Holy Spirit a few weeks ago when we looked at John 16. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak from his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. We seek, accept, and are changed by the truth together. That's a big part of what we do here, hopefully. We're set apart by that. That truth sets us apart. There's a freedom that we have that people who don't have the truth cannot have. Because of that, because of this relationship with the truth, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We are in this sense kind of like we're God's incarnation in the world. We are his representatives in the world. God in Christ came near. Now we in Christ come near to the world. We are not of the world, but we come near to the world. We engage with the world. We impact the world. That's the idea. The Greek word here for the word sent is where we get the word apostle. Sent in the authority of the one who is sending. We're like ambassadors. Verse 19, for their sake I consecrate, another word for sanctify, make myself holy, cleanse myself, that they may be sanctified in truth. Same thing. He has set himself apart. And listen, by the way, this is, this is a big part of the gospel, is to understand that Jesus Christ has set himself apart, probably referencing the fact that he is the final, perfect, flawless Passover lamb. As Paul talked about last week in regards to the um, sacrifices, Jesus is the final sacrifice. Good enough for me, good enough for you. It's, it's what he's part of what he came to do. He is the firstborn without blemish, unstained by any sin. By the way, he's also the priest who sets the lamb apart for the sacrifice and sacrifices it. Do you see why it had to be Jesus? Who else could be the priest and the lamb? Who else could do that? There's the gospel is hidden in that phrase right there. The priest and the lamb rolled into one. He's also an example of what it looks like to live rightly. He is connecting our relationship with the truth, with the mission and purpose of his followers, and their mission and their purpose mirrors his. That's a big part of what this is about. And then we get, we are his students, his representatives, his ambassadors. To meet one of them was to meet him. It's like I've met Jesus when I hang out with you. That's the idea here. It's important that it's the Jesus of Scripture, not the Jesus we want him to be. 
No God has been created in man's image more times than Jesus Christ. He is recreated by every different movement who wants him to be a part of their movement. It's unreal how unrecognizable he is sometimes. He is, in fact, the truth. By the way, you think about this. When Pontius Pilate asked the question, what is truth? You realize he was standing inches from it. He literally is asking, what is truth? And he is, he is standing inches from someone who is the way and is the truth and is the life. I think Jesus is so exhausted. That's why we don't have an, an, an yet another I am statement right there. Then when Pontius Pilate says, what is truth? And then he turns and leaves. I think Jesus is going, I mean, I, I, never mind. Like I'm, I'm, exa- I'm truth. You're talking to it. You want bread? I'm bread. You want water? I'm the living water. You want resurrection? I am the resurrection. You want to know the way, Thomas? I am the way and the truth and the life. What is truth? Well, I am. He had to at least be thinking it. So now we have this stop and stare moment in the Bible. This is, there's a handful of those. I don't know if you've experienced that. You've been reading along through the Bible, doing just fine, and you run into something that's, that makes you stop and stare. This is one of those. 2,000 years ago, In the pitch dark, Jesus Christ standing on the Jerusalem side of the valley of the Kidron by that water, again, that bloody water, with 11 of his disciples, as as Judas is probably leading a, a, a horde of people through the town looking for Jesus right now, and Jesus has taken time to stop and pray, and in verse 20, he prays for me. He has the time in this situation to pray for me. Kind of like when you, I think when you pray for your family, when you say like, God bless my family, but in your mind you've kind of got these names and faces running. I'm picturing Jesus in this. Jesus took time to pray for me. He's praying for me, he's praying for you. Here, in this, in this place, all those years ago, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. That they meaning all those who believe, may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is you and me. Jesus prayed for us there in this place. We are the direct descendants of the truth taught by Jesus through these 11 men. Not indirect, direct. You can trace every one of the gospel messages that we heard back through generation after generation after generation to Jesus and these men. If you dusted your faith for fingerprints, it would show the footprint, the fingerprints of Jesus and John and Peter and Judas, not Iscariot, and Thomas and one another. I don't, I don't know that lineage for you. None of us probably know it. Certainly not going that far back. How wild that that exists. God knows I think it would be one of the fun things in heaven to get to trace the gospel back to Jesus Christ. It's vital that we have these relationships with one another. I'm going to take just a moment and reference. This is part of why we do small groups here. It's why we're going to do small group training. You heard that next week we're going to do training, just a a one-day training for people who work with um, young people and minors, children. But for the next 10 weeks after that, we will be doing training for anyone who wants to lead a small group. Over the next few years, we'll do this a few times, and eventually it'll be that, that you'll need to have gone through this training to lead a small group for adults, maybe for teens. 
That's the plan. But we have life groups that run. We have these, as we're growing as a church, it's vitally important that we get to connect to one another in ways that you can't possibly connect to someone in here who knows what's going on in your life in ways that that's not the case. We have a parents of teens class on Sunday mornings just in the first hour, the hour that, like the last hour. Parents of teens, some of you are in these. Parents of teens class, verse by verse class, um, which is a general study. They go, they go through different topics. John leads that. Um, what are y'all doing next, you said, Genesis? So starting a study on Genesis, um, and there it's a great class to at least to get started in. Um, you may then end up going to a class that's more your age range or whatever. But so the parents of teens class, which studies the same thing the teenagers are studying, so that you could talk about that on the way home and over lunch. The parents of young children's class, a blended families class, college and young adults class. This hour while we're in here, what's meeting is a prime timers class for grandparents and retirees, um, a women's class for, the, for women of any age to be a part of, foundations class, which is the basics of what we believe and why we believe it and how to talk about it and even defend it. We have a young family connections class, legacy builders, which is a class for people in the 40 to 60 year old range, um, and a honeymooners class. Pretty much every life stage covered. There's an opportunity for you on Sunday morning. We also have Sunday evening life groups. We have Grief Share, which has already been running for a while, um, a few weeks. It's a great one to be a part of as we each of us deal with grief in different ways. Um, we have a special need families group that meets. So if we've got family members who have special needs and the challenges and difficulties, we need friends with that. Um, who go through that. Financial Peace University is about to start up. Um, most of us stink at money stuff, and so this is a great opportunity to be a part of that. Any and all of these you can sign up for in different ways, online or call up here or whatever. Um, on the weekdays, we already have a young professionals class that meets on Tuesdays. We have a Bible study about uh, that right now is going through God of the Covenants on Tuesdays in the morning, um, and there will be others. But these are, these are different life groups that you could get together involved with. There are dozens of other unofficial ones. Groups of men or women or couples who get together, who study together, who pray together, who learn together. Like, this is something for all of us to be a part of. Don't miss out on it. We are united, as, as Jesus says here, we are united to one another, but not the world. We need to remember that. We are united to God, but not the world. The glory you have given me, Jesus says, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them you in me, that they may become perfectly one. The, the, the Colossians 3 references perfect harmony that is developed in us through Jesus Christ. This word perfect. If you're in apologetics, you've heard of the teleological argument. It's called the watchmaker argument. This says that, that there, the proof of God is that there are things with purpose on earth. There's creation with purpose, with intentionality, like finding a watch on the beach. Someone made that watch. It's, it's irrational to think that the component parts of a watch would come together on their own. That's irrational. It's too complex. It has a purpose. Therefore, there must be a designer. This idea, that word teleos, is the root for the word perfect here. With intentionality, completed, as intended, whole, fulfilled. The purpose it was given and not any less that was intended. Finished. It's the word that Jesus uses in John 19.30 when Jesus had received the sour wine and said, it is finished. Man, I can't wait to teach that in a few weeks. It is finished. Same root word. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Complete in who we are. Our unification, complete. It's a done deal. He's finished it. Now we're learning to live according to the truth of it. That's what we're doing. So why? 
so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them like me. We're ambassadors. We're in the world that the world may know him. It was a movement, a countercultural movement, a little bit of a revolution. So let me make sure you hear it here in case there's any question. Here's the gospel as Jesus has just exemplified it in the prayer to God the Father. You ready? One, God loves you. Two, he sent his son to get you. The end. That's the gospel. God loves you and he sent his son to get you. That is what we are here for. We are here to deliver that message in the way we live, in what we say, and how we love each other, and how we love his church, and how we love the people in the parking lot, and at the grocery store, and at the restaurant, that what we communicate with our lives and our words is this, God loves you, and he sent his son for you. That is the message. So we get to, he, Jesus says, I desire, in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see the glory you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That should sound familiar from John 14. I want to show off to my bride, to my people. I want to show off how much I love them. I want to show off how much glory you've given me because you love me. I can't wait to show this stuff off. That's where we are. So I'm going to close in this prayer. As John comes up, I'm going to, I'm going to close our time this morning in the prayer, the last few lines that Jesus prays. Um, with it slightly changed so that it doesn't turn me into Jesus in the prayer, uh, but legitimately to pray this for us, this very thing that Jesus 2,000 years ago prayed for us, for those who would hear the truth and believe it because of the, the teaching of the apostles. So um, stand, if you will. So in this prayer, as you hear it, and realizing, reminding yourself, this is our purpose, this is why we're here, is to communicate with our family, with our friends, with our spouses, with our kids, with our neighbors, with the world. He loves us. He sent his son for us. This is good news. So we want our lives to be filled with this. If, if you need to come pray at the end of this prayer while John is leading us in song, do it. If you need to pray where you are, if you need to wrestle with the Holy Spirit, if you need to go find somebody, and make something right between you and somebody else. Do it. If you need to confess something in your heart or celebrate something with the Lord, do it. If you've already been through the welcome home team and you're ready to join our church, now's the time to do that too in a second during the song. So let me pray. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these that you have sent me, they know you. These that you sent Jesus, we know you. And Jesus has sent us as you sent him. Father, I've made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me, that the love which with, with which you love Jesus, may be in them, may be in us and Christ in us. Amen. John.